Hey, we are, uh, we're in the book of Acts, and we're in chapter 2. And uh, for those of you that were with us last weekend, remember I opened up the message by, uh, you know, sharing a, a little personal incident in my life. Uh, I had a sports injury, so I had to go see the doctor. And after that, you know, I went uh, to the chiropractor, and he sat, down with, he sat down with me with this consultation, right? And he said, uh, there are two approaches to your wellness. Uh, number one, there's the pain management approach. Uh, when you have an injury, you come see me, I fix you, you don't come back until you uh, have another injury. Or you can get on a wellness plan, you can begin to see me more consistently, more regularly, and perhaps prevent one of these injuries from occurring again. And as he was sharing that, I thought about church life, I thought about Christianity, I thought about you, and I thought about me, that many times we're on that, that uh, first plan, that pain management plan. You know, when we're feeling pain in our life, we come to Jesus. When we're feeling pain in our life, we come to church, and we get the help that we need. Uh, and as soon as we start feeling better, we're like, okay, that's cool. I'm past this now. And we kind of go back to our same way of living until the next crisis happens, until the next storm in life. And then we rush back to church or we come back to Jesus, and he's always there to help us and to encourage us. And, of course, the church, you know, that lifts up Jesus is always there to help us and encourage us. But there's a better plan. There's a wellness plan plan. There's a continuous spiritual wellness plan that I believe that God wants all of us to follow. And in Acts 2, as I was experiencing this in my own life and as I was studying for these messages that I'm sharing with you, I thought, wow, there's a spiritual wellness plan right here in Acts chapter 2. Now, for those of you that were with us last week, uh, we covered three of uh, about six points that I wanted to share with you. So we got through the first three. And remember, uh, we talked about God's wellness plan, your spiritual, emotional, physical well-being, your wellness plan includes, number one, hope. We talked about this last week and expounded upon that. Number two, it includes a spirit-filled life that we talked about last week. And number three, the third point that we covered is that uh, a God's wellness plan for your life and my life includes counting the days to to the return of Christ. So we're going to pick up today where we left off last week. And point number four, God's wellness plan includes great preaching. Now, remember what's happening here in Acts chapter 2, right? It's the day of Pentecost. There are over 200,000 extra people from all around the world that are in Jerusalem celebrating the feast of Pentecost. These were Jewish, uh, these were Jews, all right, followers of God or proselytes, uh, those that had converted from being a Gentile to Judaism. They were all there to celebrate the feast of Pentecost. What happens? The Holy Spirit's poured out, right? 120 believers in an upper room, they're all filled with the Holy Spirit, begin to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gives them utterance, and there's this sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and the commotion draws the attention of all these worshipers. And literally, literally, we know this, we know this, literally thousands of people gathered outside of that upper room. Well, Peter seizes the day, right? He seizes the moment. He's ready. I mean, he gives, he gives the greatest sermon preached at that moment because it was the first sermon post-Pentecost ever preached. And he gives it with all his heart. He stands up and he begins to preach. He begins to quote from the prophet Joel. Because remember, there were many in the crowds that they were like totally amazed that people in their own, that that these Galileans were speaking in their own dialect, their perfect language in their mother tongue, the wonderful works of God. But there were others there that day and they were mocking They thought that they were drunk. You know, they were making excuses for what was happening. So Peter stands up. He begins to preach. He's preaching from the prophet Joel. And he continues his sermon. He continues it in verse 22. Let's pick up where we left off last week. He says this. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, 
a man, attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know. Right off the bat, Peter is saying, I present to you today Jesus of Nazareth. He is Messiah. He and he alone is a man that has been attested, that has been approved, that has been certified by God to be the Savior of the world. And how do we know that, Peter? How do we know that today? Peter says because God proved or certified him as being Messiah by the miracles and the wonders and the signs which God did through him in our midst. You know, what sets Jesus apart from all the other religious leaders that have ever lived? All the other self-proclaimed messiahs that may be alive today or may come in the future. What has and what always will set Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Jesus of the Bible, what has set him apart, what will continue to set him apart as the certified Savior of the world? His miracles, his wonders, his signs. Only Jesus could open up blind eyes. Only Jesus could unstop deaf ears. Only Jesus could cleanse the lepers. Only Jesus of Nazareth could raise the dead. Only Jesus could turn the water into wine. Only Jesus could walk upon the water. Only Jesus could have done the miracles and the signs and the wonders that he performed. Matter of fact, one of his own apostles, John the apostle said, if all the books that should be written about Jesus and his life and the things that he did. If all the books that should be written were written, John says this, the earth itself could not contain all the books that should be written about Jesus. You know, if, if that were John today, if John were speaking today, he said, of all the things that Jesus did, of all the things that Jesus taught, if they were recorded, there's not enough megabytes in the world today. Uh, to store up all that should be written about Jesus. There are not enough computers at Microsoft. Uh, there's not, there are not enough computers at Apple. The NSA does not have storage sites large enough to be able to contain everything that should be written about Jesus. And just think of it, child of God. He's your Lord. He's your Savior. He's your Redeemer. He's your Messiah. He's the one that gives meaning to life. And he's living in our hearts. Peter goes on, verse 23. Him, Jesus, being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands and have crucified and put to death. I have to understand Peter gets real deep here theologically, okay? He talks about the predetermined, predestined foreknowledge plan of God related to Jesus. Now, what you have to understand is Jesus Christ was not murdered because nobody could take his life from him. Nobody could kill Jesus without his consent. He was God in human form. He said, no one takes my life. I lay, I lay it down willingly. So Jesus, as when he died on that cross, he gave up the ghost, the Bible says. He gave out his life, his last breath for you, for me, for the whole world. 
But still, man's responsible for nailing him to that cross. They, it was a criminal act. It was a criminal act. It was a lawless criminal act for them, for Rome, along with the Jews at that time, those who conspired against Jesus, to nail him to that cross and to kill the spotless, sinless Son of God. It was a lawless criminal act because Jesus was innocent. But yet, there is a bigger picture. There was something that God was using this and God was working behind the scenes. It was the predetermined purpose, divine plan, and foreknowledge of God that this would take place. You see, it never took God, the Father, or the Son, or the Holy Spirit, the Holy Trinity, never took him by surprise when Adam sinned in the garden. The Bible tells us that Jesus was the Lamb of God slain before the foundation of the world. The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit knew in eternity past that one day the second member of the Godhead, Christ, pre-existent, pre-eternal, second member of the divine Godhead, would have to take upon himself human form. He would have to humble himself. He would have to set aside his royal crown, take off his royal robe, put down his royal scepter. He would have to humble himself and be born of a virgin and take on human flesh and human form that he might redeem mankind, that he might rescue mankind from sin and and bring us back into relationship with God. Uh, God knew this in eternity past. It was the determined foreknowledge of God. Yet, though we see the sovereignty of God at work in the crucifixion of Jesus, still there's the responsibility of man. Man carried out this heinous crime against the Son of God. And Peter's basically saying, you're all guilty. Okay? And then verse 24 goes on, whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be held by it. For David says concerning him. Now, remember uh, last week we we went through this. Peter was quoting Joel. Now he's going to quote the book of Psalms. Now he's going to quote the prophet David. Verse 25. For David says concerning him, I foresaw the Lord, Jehovah, always before my face. For he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart rejoiced and my tongue was glad. Moreover, my flesh also will rest in hope, for you will not leave my soul in Hades or hell, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. Now, every time the Jewish people would read this section of Scripture in the book of Psalms, they thought it was David talking about himself. Peter's about to pull the veil of revelation knowledge away from uh, uh, what was blinding their eyes so that they could get this revelation that David was not talking about himself. David was talking about Messiah. He was talking about Jesus. This is actually a messianic prophecy about Jesus. And they're about to get this for the first time. Verse 28. You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of joy in your presence. Men and brethren, let me speak speak freely to you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. In other words, David wasn't talking about himself. Uh, His body saw corruption. His his tomb is with us today. His bones are still here in the earth. Therefore, verse 30, being a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his body according to the flesh he would raise up the Christ to sit on his throne, he, foreseeing this, spoke concerning of the, of the Christ, the resurrection of the Christ, that his soul was not left in Hades. Whew, this is heavy-duty stuff, okay? Now, every Jewish person that was there that day understood what Peter was saying because they studied the Scriptures. 
They knew the scriptures like the back of their hand. They memorized these scriptures. And when Peter applies them to Jesus, boom, revelation knowledge comes for the first time. They're like, whoa, all my life I was raised thinking that this was David talking about himself. He says, no, it wasn't. It was the prophet David talking about the Messiah. Just like we look back to Jesus and put faith in him, Old Testament saints looked forward in faith to Jesus and put faith in him. And King David knew because the Holy Spirit revealed it to him that from his lineage would come the Savior of the world. I mean, how awesome is that? How would you like to know that your, your, your son, 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 son would eventually bring into this world the Savior uh, himself, Jesus Christ? So all along, now Peter says, this is not talking about David, this is talking about Jesus. And it says in the promise of Scripture that God would not leave his soul in hell or his body to see corruption. Now what's that talking about? So what happened to Jesus after he died on the cross? What happened to him? Where was he for the next three days? Well, Jesus said in Matthew 12, 40, as Jonah was swallowed by a huge uh, fish and was in his belly for three days and three nights, so will the Son of Man be in the heart of the earth for three days and three nights. So where was Jesus? Well, he was in the heart of the earth. But where exactly in the heart of the earth? Did you know that there are like three compartments to uh, the underworld? Three compartments. Let me give you this real quickly. The Bible, when the Bible talks about the place of the dead, it uses the word hell. Sheol in the Hebrew for the word hell. And Hades in the Greek New Testament for hell. Hell is a real place. Uh, hell is the temporary place of the dead. When somebody dies and is not, does not believe in God, does not trust in God as their Savior, does not trust in Jesus... When that person dies, they go to a literal place called hell. Jesus told the story about that in Luke chapter 16. He said there was a rich man and Lazarus. Uh, and the rich man died and was taken to Hades. And in Hades, he opened his eyes. And in torment, in the, in the flames of hell, he was in torment. But it says that, that, uh, uh, a, uh, that Lazarus was taken to a place called Abraham's bosom. So in the, heart, in the underworld, there's a place called Hades uh, or Sheol. It's the temporary place of the dead. It has fire, which is a Greek word, Giena, which is another term that's used to describe hell. Uh, it's a place that, of torment that was not intentionally originally created for man. Jesus himself said hell was created for the devil and his angels. God does not want a single person to go there. But anybody can go there on their own accord if they simply reject Jesus. Now, I know, talking about hell makes people feel real uncomfortable and maybe a little hot, okay? You know what I'm talking about? But it's in the Bible, and we need to learn about what Scripture teaches about these, these important doctrines. So where was Jesus for three days? He was in the heart of the earth. Well, was he in hell? Gienna? No. He wasn't in there burning and suffering for our sin. He never committed sin. He became sin. And he justified uh, uh, the claims of, just, of God's justice as he hung on that cross and said, it is finished. Paying the price for you. So where was he? Remember when Jesus hung on that cross, there were two thieves, one on his left, one on his right. Do you remember one on his left derided him, but the one on his right said, hey, hey, he intervened and said, hey, hey, we deserve to be here. This guy doesn't. And remember what that thief told Jesus when he hung on that cross? He said, Lord, when you come into your kingdom, <laughs> he confessed him as Lord. He knew he had a kingdom, and he knew he was going to go to heaven from which he came. And the guy said, would you put in a good word for me? 
Actually, he said, would you remember me? You know what Jesus told that guy? Jesus told that guy this. He said, he said, very, very, very precise what Jesus said. What did he say? He said, today you'll be with me in paradise. Look it up for yourself. Jesus told that thief on his right. He didn't say, today you'll be with me in heaven, because he wasn't going to heaven yet. He said, today you'll be with me in paradise. Not only in the underworld is there hell, Tartarus, which is the temporary place of the dead, but there's also this place called paradise or Abraham's bosom. This is where the Catholic uh, tradition uh, derives their understanding of purgatory, a holding compartment. Now, purgatory not, is not a, a, a thoroughly scriptural teaching. Don't mean to offend any Catholics. I was, I'm, I was raised a Catholic. Okay, they got a lot of good doctrine, but just like all of Christianity, we got some bad doctrine too. Purgatory is not a real place. Paradise was. Paradise was the temporary holding place for all the righteous dead. You see, when Abraham died and Sarah died, when Joshua died, when David died, when Isaiah and Ezekiel and Samuel and all the Old Testament saints died, they couldn't go to heaven yet. They went to this place called Abraham's bosom, paradise. And when Jesus gave up the ghost and physically died, the, the, the thief that was on his right, that very moment, Jesus, he died, then Jesus died, and boom, they both uh, showed up in paradise together. I mean, how cool would that be, right? Jesus shows up, everybody recognizes him, like, who's your friend? Because this is my friend. You know, he just got saved. <laughs> he's my most recent convert. And he's like high-fiving Abraham and Isaiah and Jeremiah. Like, welcome, man. You, got, you barely got in, dude. You barely got in, right? It's like some of you, right? <laughs> you barely got in. Now, Peter also tells us that there's this place called Tartarus. Tartarus, T-A-R-T-A-R-U-S. 2 Peter 2.4, Jude verse 6. Tartarus is separate from paradise, or Abraham's bosom, separate from Sheol, or Hades, the temporary place of the dead that, where the Guiana fires are burning. Okay? Tartarus is this own separate compartment, and it's a place where angels, not the angels who fell with Lucifer a long time ago, but angels who sinned back in the book of Genesis, they left their, their, their assigned habitation and they did some really bad things, okay? and we can only assume what those bad things are. Okay? Genesis 6 talks about angels and the daughters of men, and I'm not going to get into that right now. But these angels were put in a place called Tartarus, and they are held in chains there. Okay? Now, the Bible also talks about a bottomless pit called the abyss. All right? Uh, in Revelation 9-2. The abyss, this, this compartment in the earth, is a bottomless pit. Lucifer one day will be bound by chains and thrown into the bottomless pit for a thousand years during the millennial reign of Christ on the earth when we will rule and reign with Jesus for a thousand years. At the end of the thousand years for God's predetermined foreknowledge, purpose, and plan beyond our ability at times to comprehend, Lucifer, Satan, will be, uh, will be let out of the bottomless pit one last time, one last time, and then after that, after that, uh, the great white throne judgment, and then there's another place mentioned in the Bible called the Lake of Fire. The Lake of Fire, Revelation 20, 14. And then what happens is this. All of the unrighteous dead will come out of hell, will stand before the great white throne judgment, and their names, if they're not written in the Lamb's Book of Life, which they won't be, that's why they're standing at the great white throne judgment. If you've accepted Christ, you will not stand before God at the great white throne judgment because your sins have already been judged by Christ 2,000 years ago. You'll stand before the Bema seat of Christ or the judgment seat of Christ, and you'll be judged not for your salvation, 
but for your works, what you did while you were in the body to determine the, the awards or the rewards that you will have in eternity, okay? So it's separate. So at the great white throne, the books will be opened. Whoever's name is not written in the book of life will be thrown in the lake of fire. Hell will be thrown in the lake of fire. Satan and all his angels will be thrown in the lake of fire. The angels and Tartars will be thrown in the lake of fire. Everything will be thrown into the lake of fire. So these are the different uh, compartments of the underworld that we need to be somewhat familiar with. Now, paradise is no longer open for business because at the, after the, uh, the resurrection of Jesus, at the ascension of Jesus, in Ephesians chapter 4, it says he led captivity captive, which means this. When Jesus was ushered into glory and the gates of heaven and the gates of glory were open, he ushered in with him all the saints of old that had died before uh, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, and he ushered them all into heaven. So now, the only compartment that's open for business right now, and business is booming, I'm just saying, the Bible, says, the Bible says that hell opens its mouth to receive you. Hello. How many are like, I'm glad I'm not going to hell? Look to your neighbor and say, I'm, I'm glad you're not going to hell. Go and tell them, I'm glad you're not. I know we tell some people go to hell. You don't, I'm glad you're not going to hell. <laughs> you might make sure, are you sure you're not going to hell? Okay. I mean, you're in church today, my friend, and you can know that you're not going there and you're going to a better place called heaven. Hello? I mean, want to go to heaven. I want to go where Jesus is, right? All right, so Jesus, while he was uh, in the heart of the earth, it says he preached to the spirits who were in jail. He's preached not to get saved, but he preached to those in Tartarus as a proclamation of judgment against them. Plus, he was in Abraham's bosom in paradise, you know, uh, hanging out with all the Old Testament saints until he led captivity. Like, is all that in the Bible? It is. I don't have time to go through it point by point. Uh, but, hey, if you want to really go, do deep, go some deeper, do a deeper study on this, Kenneth Wiest. W-U-E-S-T, Kenneth Weiss, New Testament Studies. Uh, uh, he's a Greek scholar, and he does great, uh, exp- exp- gives great explanation to a lot of what I had just shared with you uh, this morning. So, Jesus was in, his soul was not left in Hades, nor did his body see corruption. He goes on, verse 32. This Jesus, say those two words with me. This Jesus, not some other. This Jesus God has raised up, of which we are all witnesses. Therefore, being exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this which you now see and hear. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he says himself, and this is once again a messianic prophecy, quoting from the Old Testament, book of Psalms, I think think Psalm 110, this is David now, for David did not ascend into heaven, but he says, uh, but he says himself, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. How many lords are mentioned in that, in that verse? Two. David's talking. David says, the Lord, God the Father, said to my Lord, Jesus Messiah. Okay, you got this? God is called Lord. Jesus is called Lord. So the Lord, God the Father, said to, this is David talking, David confessed Jesus as Lord, pre-cross, okay? He said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Verse 36, therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made, say these two words with me, this Jesus. Say it again, this Jesus 
whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. I know Peter's preaching. Come on, church. How many know Peter's preaching right now? Right? He's not pulling any punches. He comes to this point in his sermon and he says, yeah, I said all that to say this. Jesus, whom you crucified, you're all guilty. You're all guilty. God has made him both Lord and Christ. Not just Lord, Yahweh, Jehovah, but Lord and Messiah. Basically he's saying, yeah, Jesus is that. Deal with it. And he probably threw down the mic and said, I'm out of here. Okay. <laughs> so, uh, now this... This message contains what Roland, uh, Roland Hill, a famous preacher of long ago, made popular. Ruin by the fall, redemption through the death of Jesus, and regeneration through the power of the Holy Spirit. Ruin because of the fall, but redemption because of Jesus, and regeneration through the power of the Holy Spirit. So God's spiritual wellness plan for your life and my life, it includes great preaching. You know what makes a sermon a great sermon? Because it gives me goosebumps. No. You know what makes a great sermon a great sermon? Because the, the preacher makes me laugh. No. Uh, what, you know what makes a sermon a great sermon? Because I, I have these wonderful thoughts that enter into my mind. No. You know what makes a great sermon a great sermon? A great sermon is only a great sermon when that sermon is about Jesus. Amen. I mean, if you hear somebody preaching and they never mention the name of Jesus and they never mention his death, burial, and resurrection and the power of the Holy Spirit, I want you to know you heard a great motivational speech but you didn't hear a sermon. I want you to know that if you hear somebody claiming to be preaching a sermon and they never preach Jesus and they never mention Jesus, you have heard a really good chit-chat. You've heard somebody that, could, that has great oratorical skills, at granted, okay, but you haven't heard a sermon until you hear the name of Jesus mentioned in that sermon numerous times. And number two, you have not heard a great sermon until a great sermon not only includes preaching about Jesus, but you have not heard a great sermon unless a great sermon is filled with good holy scriptures. Preaching the word of God. Preaching the Bible. Amen? But number five, God's wellness plan includes, number five, action. Action. Look at verse uh, 37 uh, and 38. Now, when they heard this, they were, what? Say it with me out loud. Cut to the heart. Say it again. Cut to the heart. When they heard what? The sermon. The sermon was so powerful, he was so anointed, when the thousands, you're going to find out that there were thousands gathered there. You're going to find out in just a moment. There were literally thousands gathered there, okay? When they heard this sermon, they were, say it with me again, cut to the heart. Now, I had to stop there. And so in my studies, I said, Lord, what's that? what is that Greek word for the word pierce or the word cut? It's the Greek word katanuso, katanuso, and, and it means this, to strike violently or to stun. It says, when they were struck violently by the truth. You know what it means to strike violently? I want to strike this table violently, but I don't want to break it because it was expensive, okay? Uh, can I have a volunteer up here, okay? Can, can, to strike violently. Good preaching is when you are struck 
to the heart violently with truth. And it's like a sharp, the word of God is like a sharp two-edged sword, and it pierces your, your heart, and it pierces my heart, and it stuns us back to life. I think of, uh, you know, an AED, and I think when somebody's heart goes dead, you know, they go code blue, right? And they have those paddles, right? And they, and they say, clear the room, clear the area, here we go. And they put them, boom, nothing happens yet. And they go, oh, another time, turn up the voltage, you know. And then, boom, the guy jumps. You know, well, I've seen it in the movies, you know, the body shakes, right? And then his eyes <laughs> pop open, and they bring him back to life. Bring him back to life. That's what a good sermon does. It puts uh, the AED, you know, the pads of heaven, of the divine truth of Holy Scripture upon the, your spiritual heart. Boom! And it pumps in life. And if the sermon hasn't cut to your heart, if it hasn't done that, it's not a sermon. I think far too many sermons are coded with coding these days. You heard me right. Too far too many sermons are coded with coding these days. I was visiting my mom over the last couple of weeks, you know, in Albuquerque, and bless her heart, man, she's, she's nursing, a, 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 her knee's hurting her, right? So uh, they're working on it. They're working on it. But they gave her some strong pain medication, Tylenol-3 with, like, codeine in it. And I know, I, I would know when she would take one of those pills because, like, we're talking, hanging out, having a good time. They say, no, she's, <laughs> she's out. She's out, man. I'm like, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll find something to do for the next couple of hours. You know what I'm talking about? And I thought, that's like a lot of sermons today. People hear a lot of sermons today, and they're coded with coding. Because they say, you know, they're like, oh, when's church going to be over? Where are we going to go eat? Wake me up when he's done. Yeah, hello. <laughs> but we need, we need some sermons that cut to the heart. And he goes on. And, said, and they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, please look at this, men and brethren, Say these last four words out loud with me. What shall we do? Say it again. What? One more time. You know, at the end of every great sermon, I don't care if the preacher fumbled through his words, mispronounced words, got certain things in the message wrong, if the name of Jesus was proclaimed and the Holy Scripture was expounded upon, it's your responsibility and my responsibility at the end of that sermon to say, God, what must we do? What should we do, Lord? Every time we hear a message, every time we hear a sermon, every time we read uh, uh, the Bible in our own personal devotional, reading through the Bible in a year, we should get to a place, Lord, what would you have me to do? What are you, sp- what are you saying? What are you speaking to my heart today? And what would the Holy Spirit have me apply in my life today? So that's what they did. Thousands said, what shall we do? Verse 38, Peter said to them three things. Repent. And let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, number two, and then for the remission of sins. And then number three, you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Repent. What is repentance? You know, ours is not a tearless faith. You listening to me? Our faith is not a tearless faith. There is a godly sorrow. There's a sorrow of this world that leads to death, but there's a godly sorrow, my friend, that leads to a place of repentance. And what is repentance? It's turning to God. All of us begin this world with our back turned against God. And when we repent, we do an about face and we turn our back on sin and we turn our hearts and face towards God. We have a change of heart. True repentance is turning from our sin and turning to God so that we can receive the remission of those sins, the forgiveness of those sins, and then to be saved, we confess Christ as Lord and Savior, and then we're baptized. Baptism 
Water baptism doesn't save us, but it's how we make a public profession that our faith is now in Jesus. And then what happens next? We receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And then number six, finally number six, God's wellness plan includes family. You know, my friend, God loves the family. God believes in the family. We're in a, a time in our world today and in our culture today where you can uh, barely recognize what a family is anymore. The definition of the family has been so twisted and so distorted, and, and we just slap that label family on everything and anything. And it undermines and undercuts the true biblical definition of what a family, what a family really is, and the value and the importance of a family. Dr. Kenneth Kingsburg, who practiced adolescent medicine at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, uh, the author of Building Resilience in Children and Teens, explains connectedness is the biggest thing you can do to encourage your child to be healthy and to have a healthy lifestyle. Connectedness. According to the research, people with a strong connection to their families are less likely to do drugs uh, uh, to be, and to be more engaged in school and even be good drivers. <laughs> they threw that one in. I'm like, okay, that's good. <laughs> we need more connectedness in Lubbock. <laughs> but most of all, the research says a strong connection with, with your family will give you the ability to deal with the stresses of life and rise above the difficult circumstances. A recent paper in the journal Pediatrics reported that children and teens who eat with their families at least three times a week are less likely to be overweight, eat unhealthy foods, and be at risk uh, for criminal behavior and activity. Just a simple meal with your family. Why is that important? Because look at what Peter says in verse 39 through 41. For the promise is to you and to your children, number two. And then to all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call, and many and with many other words, he testified and exhorted them, saying, be saved from this perverse generation. I looked at that word perverse. When he said, be saved from this perverse generation, that word perverse is scolios. It's where we get our word scoliosis. And the Greek word means this. It means twisted. It means warped. It means curved. It means bent. Did you know that we need to be saved from a twisted, warped, curved, and bent culture that we live in today? God wants to rescue us from the perversion in our generation today. And then verse 41, it says, then, then those who gladly received his word. Say that with me. Then those who gladly received his word were baptized. And that day, about 3,000 souls were added to them. How many souls? 3,000. Christianity started with how many? 120 in the upper room on the day of Pentecost. But after pre Peter preached this great sermon, right? 3,000 were added. So now the church is 3,120. Who's counting? God is. Hello? How many know God likes big churches? How many know that God likes lots of people being saved? How many know that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son so that all the world could be saved through faith in Christ? Amen. He didn't send his son in the world to condemn the world, but to save the world. But please understand the extent of God's promise. Number one, to you. Number two, to your children. Because God loves the family. And number three, then to the rest of the world. Listen, number one, to you. Everything begins with you but does not end with you. Please listen to me closely. Your own salvation is more important and should be more important to you than anything or anyone else in all of life. 
Your first priority in life is to secure your own personal salvation in Christ. So the most important question is this, my friend, listen to me. Is it well with your soul today? Do you know that you know that you know that if you breathe your last breath here on earth, you'd breathe your first breath in glory? Do you know that there is a place reserved for you in heaven, as Jesus promised? Because Jesus said, what profits a man or a woman if they gain the whole world, but in the end they lose their soul? There are so many people in our world, they're gaining the whole world at the expense of their own souls. They're not ready to meet God. That which is of first and most important business is, is it well with your soul? This promise is to you. Number two, it's to your children. To your children or your children-to-be. Listen, you know everything you need to know about a person and a church and a society based on how they treat children. Everything you need to know is based on how somebody treats a child. One day the little kids were trying to rush to get to Jesus and the disciples were holding them back. And Jesus said, whoa, whoa, wait a minute. Suffer the little children to come unto me. Let the little children come unto me. And he gave a powerful lesson that day. He said, unless all of you be converted and become as one of these little children, none of you will inherit the kingdom of heaven. For such is the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus gave strong words. You should never hurt one of these little ones that believe in me. If you ever hurt one of these little ones that believe in me, it would be better off that you were not ever born. Jesus said this. Or that a millstone were tied around your neck and you were thrown in the depths of the sea, lest you hurt one of these little ones that believe in me. God loves the family and God loves children and God wants us to love and care for children. Listen, next to yourself, what should claim your most earnest attention is your children. You see, the man who devotes himself to ministry, building big churches, or building a business, or personal pursuits, or other hobbies, or other enterprises, all while neglecting his own family. Paul, writing to Timothy in 1 Timothy 5.8, says this, that man has denied the faith and is worse than an infidel. You know, God loves children. It is a monstrous evil to be disengaged from the spiritual, emotional, and physical well-being of your children. The problem in America today is that we are a fatherless generation. We have so many men who are AWOL, absent without leave, when it comes to them being involved in the life of their children. Not only your children, but all children. Listen, you don't have to have children to love children. Jesus was never married. That wasn't his calling. He never had a child, but he loved children. You don't have to have children to be committed to minister to children. You want to know about somebody? You want to know about a church? You want to know about a society? See how they treat children. You know, in this Beyond Project, a $15 million project, we built 82,000 square feet of added space, and the majority of that space went towards children. Why? Because we want, we make kids a priority here at Trinity. Kids come first. That's why you should never, ever, ever hurt a child. Never physically, never emotionally, God forbid, never sexually, ever hurt a child. We must come to their defense. We must come to their support. We must love children. We must minister to children. We must care for children. And we must protect children at all costs. Such is the kingdom of heaven. It's to you. 
and it's to your children. You know, I love preaching to men. I believe men want to be addressed as men. So in closing, please allow me to speak to all the men in here with a father's heart. One of the benefits of getting older, I'm 51 now, one of the benefits of getting older is that some of you could be my sons, you know. It's like I can talk to you like a father. When I first got here, I was 38. People looked at me like, what does he know? He's only been married 12 years, you know. <laughs> well, now they can't say that, okay. So let, let me share something with you as a, for the heart of a father, because I love you. This is not in any way to be condemning. Men, if you have fathered a child, you should be married to their mother, not just living with her. You know why that's important? Because, listen, all important commitments in life are formalized. All important commitments in life are formalized. When you purchase a new car, you sign an agreement. When you, when you lease an apartment, you sign an agreement. When you purchase a home, you sign an agreement. If you acquire a student loan, you sign your life away forever. <laughs> but marriage is more than a contract. It's more than an agreement. It's a covenant. And God loves marriage, and God designed marriage. Why? That the earth might be populated with godly seed. Marriage is for the benefit of those children. You say, well, Pastor, you know what? I've made some mistakes. It's too late. I can't undo what's been done. Granted. Then from this moment forward, say, God, help me to be the best father I can under the circumstances. Because God's a God of a second chance. And God will help you, and God will bless you. But don't, don't be negligent when it comes to committing to raising your children and loving them the best you can under the circumstances. Listen, if you're in a blended family, if you're in a blended family, then love those children as though they're your own. And please, please, don't play favorites. Love them all the same. Love them uniquely because we need to love them differently because they have different needs. But don't love one more than you love another. The Bible is, is replete with examples in the Old Testament of the patriarchs of old loving one child above another child and creating all kinds of anarchy and rivalries and jealousies and contentions. How many of you know God loves us all the same? He loves us all the same. And he wants us to imitate him as a loving heavenly father. And he wants us to love our children and not just our children, all children. I love little kids when, when people are coming out of church and I get to maybe hug them or give them a high five because, you know, they're not my kids, but they're God's kids, and we love all kids, amen? It's just a blessing because everything you need to know about somebody, you can know based on how children are, how they treat children. You see, God praised Abraham. The reason God praised Abraham is because he knew that he would raise his children. He would command his children after him. Joshua uh, was passionate about the family. He says, hey, do what you want to do, but as far as me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. And the greatest heartache and heartbreak of King David was when he lamented over the death of Absalom. When he said, my own son from my own flesh has betrayed me. And when he got news that Absalom had been killed, he said, oh, my son, my son, my son, Absalom, I wish it were I and not you. You hear in that brokenness of a father who failed as a father. Thank God God wasn't finished with David. He had to find grace and mercy and forgiveness. And with what remaining time and years he had left, he had to make good on his promise to be a man after God's own heart. I remember, and I'll close here, I, I remember when um, we had uh, the, uh, the director of the Family Research Council, Tony Perkins, at our Heartline Women's Clinic. His, his organization did extensive research, and they found this out. 
This is hope for every single parent in here whose father or mother may be absent from the picture. And they determined in their research that if a single parent will get immersed in, in the life of their church, that uh, the, the church can become a substitute for an absentee parent who is AWOL uh, and actually can provide the support and the encouragement that that single parent needs with the absence of the other parent not being there. Isn't it good news to know that if, uh, if we need some help as a parent raising kids, if we're a single parent, if you're a single parent, I know the church can help you do that, amen? They can help you. God can use that church in your life to bring encouragement and blessing into your life and into your child's life, and that's our commitment to you. I think of uh, Eunice and Lois, a grandmother and a mother of young Timothy. Timothy's dad was not a Christian. But yet grandma and mom got together and said, you know what, dad's kind of out of the picture spiritually speaking, but you know what, uh, there's two of us, we're, we're going to raise Timothy to love Jesus. And you know what, 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 the, what that grandmother and that mother did? They raised young Timothy up to love Jesus without the influence of the father, and Timothy became the young protege of the apostle Paul. Come on, can we give the Lord a hand for that church? It's to you, to your children, and then to as many that are far off. You see, first take care of your own salvation. Make sure that the salvation of your family is intact. And then let's get busy winning the world to Jesus. I'd like every head bowed, every eye closed. Father, we come before you today and we just humbly say, Lord, what shall we do with this message? What's the Holy Spirit calling us out of and what's the Holy Spirit calling us into? Lord, I pray for every family. I, I pray, God, for all families and I pray your grace and blessing upon them, upon marriages and upon the children of this uh, of this congregation, Lord. Now, with heads bowed and eyes closed, if you're here today and you don't know Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior, you can call upon him and know him as your own personal Lord and Savior. And simply open up your heart and receive the gift of eternal life. Say this prayer out loud with the rest of us. Dear God in heaven, I know I'm a sinner in need of a Savior. There's only one Savior. His name is Jesus. I call upon you, Jesus. I ask you now... Come into my heart, come into my life, be my Lord, and be my Savior. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. Can we thank the Lord together, church family? We love you guys. Have an awesome rest of the day.